Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Please welcome Janet. Thank you so much, everybody. I, uh, I'm going to do a little rearranging. Um, so uh, I'm a little overwhelmed because uh, you're all here. I want to thank you for that. Um, and also, this is my hometown uh, launch of the book, so there are many familiar faces who have lots of... Um, feelings attached to them for me. Um, and uh, I hope you'll bear with me while I say some special thank yous, uh, because I'm here in L.A. Um, first to Ken, my partner in life who feeds me, figuratively and literally, and stays ever true to the vow we made to support each other's creative practice. Um, no book is written without a lot of help. That's a truism, but it's also true. I want to thank our babysitting co-op for helping us to raise our beautiful daughter, Lena, and all of the other people who form our support system in times of trouble and every day. I'd also like to thank my wider circle of friends and acquaintances here tonight. Your camaraderie sustains me. And it's really nice to see CalArts colleagues and um, students and former students here uh, when it wasn't even required. Um, (laughs) And of course, my great friend Maggie, with whom I'll be conversing later. Um, And uh, finally, I'd like to thank my editors at CNR Press, Andrew Sullivan and John Gosley. They're back east in Raleigh, Durham. And my publicist, uh, Justin Hargett, who I saw, yeah, uh, for helping me get this book out in the world. And Skylight, of course, for hosting us all uh, and for all that you do uh, for independent publishing. Um, I'm going to read two stories tonight. It might be a little longer than 20 minutes, but not too long. I thought in the interest of the general morale, I'd read the apocalyptic one first and then the pre-apocalyptic one last. So um, let's see if I can find that apocalyptic one. Okay. Monument. Every night at dusk, we get into it. That's it. It's done. I'm done. We're done, she says. Come on, get up, I say. Look at that pile. Who's going to notice it? Not from out there. No way. Come on, get up. We're not done. Not by a long shot. You got a headlamp, don't you? And she looks miserable at me for a long minute, then gets to her feet and switches on her little light. The truth is, our pile's looking pretty good. We've been at it for weeks now, and there's a fairly tall stack of metal down there at the water's edge. But it's still not tall enough to be seen when the sun's not out, and you can't bet on their sailing by when it's sunny. Actually, you can bet on their not sailing by when it's sunny, because it's not sunny most of the time. 
Most of the time it's rain we're dealing with, a dirty, seeping rain that stings the hands and face. The lake water's poisoned too, always churning up dead fish, and now and then a muddy pelican with broken neck. But I try not to dwell on all that. I keep my mind on the pile. Even if they do see it, she grumbles, dusting the sand off her snow pants. Even if the sun's out and catches it just right, so what? They're not going to stop. This is another sticking point with my wife and me. Say that guy was right who passed through here, the old hippie with the ratty poncho and the stringy beard, who kept grinning at her with his yellow teeth like I wasn't standing right next to her. Say the rumor's true and rich people really are taking luxury cruises around the Great Lakes to gawk at the destruction. She has a hard time believing they might come ashore to inspect the pile, listen to our story, and take us away with them. Don't want their goddamn pity anyway, she says. Why does it always come down to that, to people like us begging for help from people like them? Well, they're not going to let you on their yacht with that mouth on you, I say. We get into the golf cart where we'll sleep later up on the boardwalk and drive back to town, back to the auto parts store, or back to the place where the auto parts store used to be. It's our best find so far. We've been digging up mufflers and tailpipes for days. Before all this began, back when metal detecting was just a hobby, we used to look for small, special things like antique jewelry, streetcar tokens, buffalo nickels, barber dimes. Things of historical interest, stuff you could tell a story about. But now it's volume we're after. Volume and shine. She sniffs and says, we've already dug up all over that auto parts store. But she scoops up a handful of colored golf tees anyway and puts them in her pocket. Then she zips up her inside parka and her outside parka against the wind, pulls on her ski gloves, and yanks down her hat. She suffers from the cold. But when the golf cart takes a turn and she slides into me, I can feel her body underneath all that padding, and it stirs me and makes me mad at our situation all over again. There's still plenty of parts in the ground if we can get to them, I say roughly. She gives me a sharp look, then looks away. I know she wants to go back to the bandstand. That's her favorite spot, always was. Used to be for the things that fell out of people's pockets when they were lounging on the grass. Now it's for the stuff kids left behind. A blue tin bucket half-melted, a western-style cap gun without a handle. One day she found a little matchbox car that was magically preserved. Honey, look, she said, holding it up like we were shopping for Christmas presents. We spent an hour digging up the mangled red tricycle that's now at the heart of the pile. No more, I said at the end of that day. No more of this, okay? But I want to get to the bottom of the auto parts. I can't believe how much metal there still is in this little town under all that ash. She gets the machine out of the back of the cart and sets off, and I zip up my parkas and retrieve the pickaxe and the shovel, giving her time to plant the brightly colored tees that tell me where to dig. A good two hours and six rearview mirrors, 12 hubcaps, and what looks to be one carburetor later, we remember we're hungry. That's what I've always loved about metal detecting. You enter a kind of deep time that's hard to come back from. Because unlike people and places, metal lasts. It may be rusted or twisted beyond recognition, but it lasts. She's fired up now and wants to keep going because she knows after we eat, it'll be my turn with the machine and hers with the pickaxe and the shovel. But I remind her how important it is to keep up our strength. So we get in the cart and head for the underground vault that's been in my family for generations, as long as the creaky wooden house that once stood over it 
which is where we keep our foodstuffs and water now. Driving through the ash, I have a hard time believing. Here once stood a town like ours, with a friendly little post office and a falling down school and a line of boarded up storefronts. It's even harder to believe that beyond the town there were white dunes with green dune grass and beyond the dune grass a wide sandy beach and a big blue lake that was clean enough most days to swim in. I'm not sure I do believe it, in, I do believe it anymore, and I know she doesn't. When you stop believing in your memories, they become a kind of dream. Oh, we almost got out. We did get out. We evacuated with the kids in plenty of time. But it was our bad luck, ours and a whole bunch of other people's, that one of those deadly viruses burned through the camp within 24 hours. But you don't want to hear that story. To be honest, I only remember the very end, when I found the golf cart and drove it back to camp and carried her out to it half alive. She's the one who notices that the dirt and ash we always cover up the vault with have been displaced and the lock's been tampered with. Somebody's been banging at it, trying to get in, she says, and when I tell her she's imagining things, she says, look, and points to the scratches. An animal was here, I say, a raccoon maybe. Uh Uh-huh, when was the last time you saw a raccoon? Well, they didn't get in, whoever it was. They won't get in, that's a high-security lock. Yes, she says, but who? The more important question is how. How did they know it was even down there? Her eyes light up. I'll bet it was someone from the club, she hisses, and I can see her body go rigid with indignation, even through all those layers. Oh, come on, be real. You think there's somebody else out here with a metal detector? Think it, she says. I know it. I'll bet it's Charlie Ross. Why Charlie Ross? Because he's just weasel enough to steal our food. She's had it in for Charlie ever since he challenged me for president of the Diggers Club and then took half the club with him when he didn't win. But I didn't blame him. People were out of work. They'd lost interest in the historical dimension. All they cared about was finding jewelry and change, stuff that would put food on their table. Get in, she says, taking the wheel of the cart. We're going for a ride. So long as it ends up back here, I shrug. I'm hungry. She steps on the accelerator, and even though the cart is solar-powered, she gets it going at a pretty fast clip. She's sure somebody's out there, so we have to circle round and round for hours until whatever daylight there was is gone and we're charging at shapes in the dark. Hey, I say finally. Hey. At first I don't think she hears me, but the cart eventually comes to a stop, and then she's just sitting there staring into the darkness. I turn to look at her, and my headlamp lights up the tears sliding down her cheeks. Hey, I say, let me drive. And then she's back at it with the nobody's ever going to come, we're going to die. Here, I wish I'd died when the kids did. I wish we'd both died then and gotten it over with. What kind of monsters outlive their children? But she gets out as she's talking, and I move over and she climbs back in on the other side. I start up the cart and head back to the vault to pick up some MREs to eat on our way out to the beach, but she won't touch hers. When we get there, she sits in the cart on the boardwalk while I unload the auto parts and take them down to the water's edge. I stack the big pieces carefully and place the mirrors all around to reflect the light from every angle when it comes. The pile's starting to take shape now, a tower shape that looks purposeful, even though it's not, a shape that makes you want to get closer, close enough to understand, or at least that's what I'm hoping. I go back up and try to talk to her, but she's still slumped over, staring straight ahead with those empty eyes. Well, good night, sweetie, I say. It'll all look better in the morning. 
I get in beside her and put my feet up on the dash and pull my hat down low over my face to keep out the rain that drives in under the canopy. But it's hours before I can sleep, and that whole time she sits perfectly still, staring and staring. Next thing I know, she's hammering at me with her elbow. Wake up, damn you, wake up. I open my eyes and it's still dark, but the rain has stopped and there's a light coming from offshore, a searchlight sweeping the beach and landing on the pile, going up and down and all around it. Suddenly I'm wide awake and we're running down to the water's edge, both of us screaming, we're here, we're here, which isn't something we'd agreed upon to scream. It's just what comes out of us as we're running toward the pile, trying to get there in time to be seen. And we're laughing, we're racing, we're shrieking with joy. It's as if we're the children and they're the parents who've come back for us. When the light switches off and leaves us alone on the shore, she doesn't say a word, just falls to her knees and then her face in the sand and I fall right down next to her and wail like a baby, loud, ugly, shaking sobs. I haven't cried once this whole goddamn time, you understand, not even when they came with the bags to take our kids away. Well, now you know what that sounds like, I say after a while, rolling onto my back, and I feel something soft land on my chest, a hand in a ski glove, her hand in her ski glove. But before I can clutch it, before I can press it to my lips, before I can unzip her outer parka and her inner parka and feel her flesh against mine, alive, alive, she rolls away. When I wake up in the morning on the cold, hard sand and she's gone, It's no surprise. In fact, it takes me a little while to react because it makes such perfect sense. Deep down, I can't believe she waited this long. But then I wake all the way up and scramble to my feet to scan the beach. The sun's broken through the clouds for the first time in weeks, and my eyes have a hard time focusing. Everything looks different in the bright, harsh light. I scan the lake, too, because that's how she always said she would end it. But there's no sign of her anywhere. The beach is empty except for our gleaming pile of junk, that shining monument to foolish hope. And it makes me so stupidly mad I run over and kick it, and kick it again, because who cares? Who cares now that she's gone? But when one of the rearview mirrors falls down, I pick it up out of habit and put it back where it belongs. I turn around, nursing my foot, and that's when I spot her, a tiny round figure in the distance. She's walking towards me down the beach, waving the machine from side to side in a slow, steady sweep, with the kind of control that takes years of practice to perfect. Lost in deep time, she doesn't see me wave or hear me call, so I go back to the cart for the long-handled scoop and make my way up to greet her. So the, the pre-apocalyptic story I'm going to read um, is, uh, it's actually based on a real figure who is Coco the Signing Gorilla, who you all may be familiar with. Um, and uh, I started writing for this collection um, a series of uh, stories narrated by uh, animals who were the subject of scientific um, experiments, and Coco is one of them. And so I went to kind of, I've always had a kind of lazy fascination with Coco. We're sort of the same age, and um, I've just always been aware of her. Um, so I went to see, you know, what she was doing. I went to the Gorilla Foundation website, and they had sort of updated themselves, and they had all these uh, videos posted 
of Coco with her researcher caretaker Penny Patterson, uh, and I started watching them, and they they really aggravated me because uh, she treated Coco like such a child. Um, so I thought it would be interesting to kind of reinterpret or reread those, re-narrate those videos from the perspective of Coco. So the story is broken up into short sections, and each one of the sections is actually the title of a real video on the Gorilla Foundation website. And I don't know if that's kosher, but that's just what I did. Uh, the story's called Meet Coco. I'm really getting up there, 44 today. Penny threw me another goddamn kitty party this morning, took me for a walk around the compound. Same thing year after year. Made a video of me unwrapping gifts, narrating my raptures and disappointments. Like I care about any of that shit. I'm telling you, 44 years is a long time to be treated like a baby. But it's my own fault, too. I mean, I have language. I could do something with it instead of lying around the trailer all day, watching TV and eating Cheetos. I'm lazy, I'll admit it. I'm an underperformer. But can you imagine my life if they knew how many signs I actually have? What my vocabulary really is? I keep try keeping our interactions as limited as possible, and Penny still bugs me all the time. Flowers, sad, fake. She can string a 20-minute conversation out of just those three words. Fake is usually directed at Penny, but she's so clueless. No, honey, those flowers aren't fake, she says. Coco's sad, I sign. Penny fake, Penny fake. <laughs> no, honey, she says. Those flowers Penny brought you are real. Of course, she could know what I'm really saying and just be bullshitting for the camera. I wouldn't put it past her. Yes, there comes a time when you have to look at your life and ask yourself, can I do better than this? I think that time is 44, and I think the answer is yes. My own mother died when she was 11. All this extra time I've been given, and what have I done with it? I'm going to start by setting the record straight. If you're reading this, you're on the Gorilla Foundation website looking at videos of me posted by Penny. Because that's where I'm putting this when I'm done. This is my counter-narrative. Yes, I did just use that word. <laughs> Meet Coco. In this video, I sign that I'm Coco and I'm a gorilla. I really meant to say gorilla, but Penny hasn't taught me the sign for that. I'm a gorilla for gorillas, sabotaging her Apes Are Our Cousins project with my bad attitude and lazy signing. Gorillas are an endangered species, it says on the screen, and then cuts to me signing sad. Sure, I'm sad about that, but I sign sad about a hundred times a day. I figure if I sign it enough, someone at the foundation will finally catch on and say, hey, Coco seems kind of depressed. <laughs> but then Penny would probably fire them. I'm good, I sign in the video, patting myself on the back. But there's no inflection in the subtitles. I'm good is how I meant it. You guys are a bunch of monkey turds. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I fell for the cousin rap too back in the day, meaning back in the 70s, though I always thought of it more as a sisterhood. You had the one pale-skinned young human female Jane camping out with the chimpanzees. You had Diane tracking gorillas in the mist. And then you had Penny, who borrowed me from the San Francisco Zoo to do her doctoral research at Stanford and never gave me back. The idea was to raise me around humans on the theory that language learning was a process of acculturation. If I bonded with Penny, I'd be motivated to communicate in ways she could understand. 
And like I said, I was into it at first. I learned my whole vocabulary, as far as they know, in those first few years, all 1,000 signs. I was dying to talk. I loved sitting on Penny's lap, running my fingers through her long hair, the color of buttercups. Flower, I signed over and over again. Sweet little gorilla. Sweet little Penny. But as time went on, my human sister started to annoy me. I knew a lot of words by then. I'd been listening carefully to Penny, to Penny bicker with Ron, to Penny's advisor drone on about primates and our abilities, and to Reggie the groundskeeper who had a mouth on him. But she wasn't teaching me any of those signs. Drink, food, more for three months running. I was dying of boredom. Plus, she used to put a leash around my neck and pull on it to get me to concentrate on my lesson. That really drove me crazy. Uh, Could you get any more annoying? Meet Coco, I signed to her. Meet Coco. At least meet me halfway. Jane went out into the jungle, and for two years, she was the lowest chimpanzee on the totem pole. She put in her time. But Penny set up shop with me in a trailer on Stanford land in Woodside, California. She used to tell reporters she started this project because she wanted to know what I was thinking, but she didn't. Not really. No human really wants to know what gorillas are thinking. Coco critiques her painting. Penny and I have very different taste in art, which is another point of conflict. In this video, I'm making an abstract painting while Penny watches. It's obviously Drek. I'm hard on myself as an artist, but that's because I have standards. Toilet, I say about my painting. Bad. Toilet. Oh no, honey, she assures me, it's very good. Look at that palette, those clumsy brushstrokes, and tell me it's very good. Coco plays with a yellow balloon. In this one, Penny gives me a yellow balloon and tells me to do something imaginative with it. I love the color. I gaze at it, drinking it in. It's like a little sun brightening up our dingy trailer. But no, it has an artificial quality to it. It's fake. How interesting, a fake sun, the way man copies nature and then seeks to replace it. I'm starting to comment on this when Peggy interrupts me. Juggle it. Come on, play with it. I stare at her uncomprehendingly. I mean, I understand what she's saying. I just can't believe this is my interlocutor for as many as eight hours a day. Is the woman capable of a complex thought? Apparently not. She takes the yellow balloon, that bright perfect orb and draws a face on it. Then she gives it back to me. I start drawing hairs on it, black hairs all over it, and Penny suddenly understands. Gorilla hairs, she cries. You're making it into a gorilla. You, I sign it, Penny, and then I pop the balloon. (laughs) You're destroying this gorilla. Coco types while Ron films. Ron and Penny giggle as I type on Penny's laptop. Ron films most of my videos, but in this one, Penny is filming him filming me. She congratulates herself on this very sophisticated bit of framing. Ron just keeps on filming. He never says much. He's Penny's research collaborator and also her mate, so much of their communication is unspoken. I type crazily, hammering at the keyboard. I pick up the laptop and bring it close to my face, then turn it upside down. Penny ultimately has to rescue her computer from me. I have sufficiently convinced them I only know how to type, not how to type. That means they will never check on me in the middle of the night to see if I'm using Penny's laptop. (laughs) Never think to open up the document titled Meet Coco on her desktop. (laughs) All ball. 
When I was around 13 or 14, Penny gave me a kitten. I'd been asking for it for over a year, but she kept giving me stuffed cats instead. Fake, bad, sad, I signed to her over and over again until she finally got the message. I called my new kitty Allball because I enjoyed the rhyme. Also, there was an absurdist quality to my Manx cat with its missing tail and squeaky little voice that put me in mind of the Dada sound poet Hugo Ball. <laughs> but according to Penny in this video, I named it All Ball because I thought it looked like a ball. You're told that when All Ball was run over by a car, I learned one of life's hardest lessons, that in loving All Ball, I experienced loss for the first time. And yes, it was sad when All Ball died. But I was taken from my mother, assholes. I already knew plenty about loss. Her warm, hairy body, gone. I fell ill as an infant at the San Francisco Zoo, and they kept me in the nursery for many months. When I got out, it was too late to bond with her, and they didn't know what to do with me, so they gave me to Penny. Plus the way they told me about All Ball, so fake. Ron was all set up to film my reaction. You see me signing, bad, sad, bad, frown, but that's not about All Ball. It's about the fact that they put me on camera when they told me the news. Later, privately, Coco expressed her grief, the voiceover says, and you see the outside of the trailer and hear me howling. I was indeed expressing my grief in that moment, that this was my life, that these were to be my companions for the rest of my days. Coco practices motherhood with Dahl. When Penny was in her late 30s, she became obsessed with the idea of my having a baby. Coco wants to be a mother so much, she kept telling everybody. She just wants a little baby to hold. She started calling around to zoos to see if she could find me a mate. First Michael, then Nduke. I'm not sure what she was expecting. I mean, they were good-looking guys, but very poor conversationalists. <laughs> Would you mate with someone you couldn't talk to? Someone who threw poop and regurge at you to get your attention? Penny and Ron were collaborators. That's the kind of relationship I was looking for. Though during that period, they argued a lot. Do you want a baby or don't you want one, Ron yelled. Just tell me what you want. It's not that simple, Penny sobbed. I want one and I don't want one. That's when she started giving me dolls to play with, gorilla and human. In this video, I press a human baby doll to my chest, but I'm not practicing motherhood, as the title suggests. I'm helping Penny work through some issues. <laughs> Coco eats all her veggies. Here you see me eating cooked vegetables out of a Tupperware with a spoon. You're really enjoying those, aren't you, honey, Penny says. This would seem inconsequential were it not for the fact that a group of former employees recently sued the Gorilla Foundation, claiming that Penny and Ron had endangered my physical welfare by feeding me junk food and allowing me to lounge around the trailer all day and never exercise. Penny's worried the lawsuit is going to drain the Foundation's coffers and prevent our move to Hawaii. So this video is really about public relations. I honestly think some nice roughage, some giant cabbage leaves, for instance, would have made for better optics, but she always gets a kick out of seeing me eat with a spoon. The plan is to move our operation out of Woodside and over to a 70-acre gorilla preserve in Maui, where I'll supposedly be more open to mating with Ndume. Yes, that's right. Penny still thinks I'm going to have a baby. Do gorillas feel empathy? In this video, Penny interprets my reaction to a shitty movie she makes her watch with her all the time, Tea with Mussolini. I turn my back to the TV and sign my displeasure during the maudlin scene where the boy is getting on the train and saying goodbye to his adopted mother. 
Oh, honey, it's sad. I know it's a sad scene. Penny says, oh, that sweet mother who adopted him, she's so sweet. <laughs> I know this meaning has special. This movie has special meaning for her, so I try not to gag. Like I said, I've always thought of her as a sister, an annoying older sister. But over the years, Penny has gradually come to see herself as my adoptive mother, my sweet adoptive mother, who also happens to be a scientist conducting an experiment on me. Yes, Penny has made her peace with not having a baby, though not with my not having a baby. You can see it's complicated emotionally. My own feelings are complicated, too. I never got too worked up over the baby thing. I mean, it either happens or it doesn't. But the value of this experiment in interspecies communication, the dream of all those disgruntled employees that they brought into at one point or another, I can't quite bring myself to deny it. Even if all Penny, Ron, and I really are is one more dysfunctional American family, another crazy mom and checked-out dad eating junk food and watching TV in a broken-down trailer alongside their lazy single adult child with a poor vocabulary, isn't there something to be learned from that? Coco, the voice of nature. Lately, people have been taking an interest in me again. This video, which Ron taped for the climate change conference in Paris, has earned the Gorilla Foundation almost a million new hits. In the past four decades, I've had my 15 minutes of fame. There was my best-selling children's book, Coco's Kitten, plus those televised visits from Mr. Rogers, Robin Williams, and Leonardo DiCaprio. So it's not as if I were a total unknown, but this video has earned me a whole new following. In the video, you see me signing, I am Gorilla, I am flowers, animals, I am nature, Coco love man, earth Coco love, but man stupid, stupid, Coco sorry, Coco cry, time hurry, fix earth, help earth, hurry, protect earth, nature watches you, thank you. Now I ask you, is this really what humans think nature would say to them if nature had a voice? No expletives? <laughs> the disgruntled employees said all they really wanted from the Gorilla Foundation was honesty. They wished Penny would stop telling people she was going to open up the Maui Preserve, stop telling them I was going to have a baby, and just make the simple pitch. There's an aging gorilla in Woodside, California, condemned by a wayward science experiment to live her life out among humans, and she needs money to fix up her trailer. I'm fine with that. I'm all for honesty, as you know, except for the Woodside trailer part. I'd really actually prefer to live out my new honest life in Maui. And while we're on the subject of honesty, as much as I appreciate their concern, I think the disgruntled employees came down a bit too hard on the foundation. Nowadays, everyone thinks 70s environmentalism was so wrong-headed. No one today would ever think gorillas should live with humans, they say, rather than with each, each other, unmolested in the wild. But look what happened when you stopped obsessing over us, stopped feeding us Cheetos and cooked vegetables. You just started killing us. For fuck's sake, says the voice of nature, there are only 800 mountain gorillas left. Coco makes a movie, but I don't want you to leave this website feeling deflated, because I'm not just a critic, I'm also a maker. And I have a great idea for a movie of my own. Wouldn't you like to see a movie made by a gorilla? Picture this, me and Penny running hand in hand into the waves off Hamoa Beach. That's the beautiful crescent-shaped one on Maui, both of us naked, in a total state of nature. And Ron lumbering after us, also naked, his body and gait a lot like mine. Now that we're all stripped down, communing in paradise, these things can be acknowledged. But 
then the camera pans to a speedboat anchored not far from where we frolic, revealing a troop of gorillas lounging on the deck in string bikinis and speedos, sipping on banana daiquiris and listening to the theme from Hawaii Five-O. I see them and freeze. The camera zooms in on my confused expression. I look back at Penny and Ron, and then from Ron and Penny to the gorillas on the speedboat, I'm so confused. Who am I? What am I? Where do I belong? And the title scrolls down the screen. Meet Coco. I haven't gotten any further than that opening sequence, but you get the idea. This will be a story for the ages, folks, or the next stage, anyway. The one where your salmon's laced with cocaine and antidepressants, the bees have disappeared, and the clouds are seeded so you're never sure what or who's responsible for the rain. If you want to know what that's going to be like, if you're yearning to feel the shudder of recognition that attends a great work of art, if you're intrigued by the possibility that this artwork might come from a gorilla, not a human, then hop on over to my crowdfunding page. More details await you there. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Sorry, I've been around the corner on the floor. I haven't seen this great crowd yet. Um, Janet, that was awesome. Um, And thanks for having me uh, out to do this. I think that you guys are probably going to want to probably have questions for Janet, too. So I think I'll just ask a few things just to get the party started, and then you guys can kind of take it away. But, um, I mean, for those of you guys, I mean, I love this book so much, and I think I'm really glad you read two stories, because for those of you who don't know the book... um, I mean, one of the things about Janet's story is it's so uh, compelling and unusual is that each one does what, you know, was just evidence, which is kind of um, has a, a concept or a premise, you know, and then kind of takes it takes it from there. And I was just curious, you know, since we just got to hear two really different premises, um, and you described a little bit looking at the Coco website and then looking at the titles, is it, I mean, I think as somebody who really loves you know, kind of so-called conceptual fiction. I'm very um, drawn both to your stories, but also the kind of um, the methods that they lay bare. And I just wonder if you want to say anything more about how you go about, you know, is it like the idea is kind of like, because you guys don't know this, or some of you do have read it, but like things like Sunshine Collective, which is, you know, epistolary, this really hilarious kind of art satire or other ones, um, their form like what you just read with Coco is as uh, it's as integral as uh, the concept behind it. So, mm-hmm. thanks, Maggie. Um, yeah, on my last book, a reviewer said I had some kind of mad PowerPoint Jones to, <laughs> to about that same thing, um, which you know I, I definitely have an affinity for. I, I really can't write a story without thinking about the form that it's going to be in. And some of these are, you know, the monument story is pretty straightforward, interior uh, monologue. But um, there was a reason I, I felt like it, it needed mm-hmm. to be that way. Um, and then, uh, you know, Coco's story is so much about language and, and about sort of being able to communicate. Um, and, and also about how we communicate today in the contemporary age, because as I said, Coco's been around for a long time, um, and she, you know, used to have, um, you know, visitors uh, who were TV celebrities. Um, but now it's more that she's broadcast is on the internet, right? Um, that she's uh, that was a viral video, the 
the voice of nature, and that was verbatim from the actual video. Um, and uh, uh, so to, to, to have her kind of grab the reins of that um, was very appealing to me. Um, and sort of to think about viral videos as how we communicate now versus TV versus actual uh, uh, language and signing as they were trying to communicate in the 70s. And, and it does raise the question of, oh, yes, they were really misguided because she ended up in this kind of... Um, you know, cyborgian state in between being a, a human and, a, and an animal, um, but uh, but there there was there there was a kind of love in that. It's interesting to kind of think about um, uh, versus how she is um, sort of how she exists now uh, to kind of come into the climate change uh, conference as our kind of moral uh, moral center. Um, uh, but again, she's she's not in control of that, right? Um, she's still sort of uh, uh, serving at the whims of quote-unquote science. I mean, there's a lot of uh, skepticism about the science around the experiment of Coco. Um, but still, I think she's a fascinating character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, maybe I want to... Two things that you just said I think are interesting. One is that you were saying... Um, uh, about the interior monologue, that there's a reason why you did that, and then secondly, this issue about character, and I think, um, I mean, a very hackneyed way of thinking about um, your other work and teaching and writing about social movements, um, and what how fiction, especially fiction spoken as monologues, or from kind of like you know whether it's Coco or the speaker, kind of like the internal monologue, you know, the hacking way is kind of like oh, it's giving, you know, uh, individual voice to you know larger you know larger movements or uh, the experience of apocalypse from within or whatever. But I kind of feel like that because you're, and you guys probably got this sense too that. But you don't go full on into like juicy characterization. You know, everything remains kind of um, in a in a good way. I think generic, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of tension between like we're not really getting you know deep interior experience. We're getting kind of something else, which feels really mediated by the by the flatness and kind of wryness of the language that you choose. So I don't know if you want to say anything about your um, either that dynamic, if I've characterized it correctly to you, and also about your work in social movements and and what you how you conceive of the fiction. As as related, you know. That's such a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think that um, on this question of sort of working with flat characters, I think it's it. I, I am drawn to that. Um, it has to do with with humor, right? And with kind of. Um, I, I really like the way humor kind of um, uh, creates different emphases, so, uh, so, the, so so that we start to value things that we don't usually think are valuable, or we are irreverent and, and mocking of, of values that we think are all uh, dearly held and shared. Um, and uh, with animal, you know, these the animal stories are kind of in between. Uh, um, a, sort of a, a character-driven uh, uh, fiction and an animal fable, which is this form I'm really interested in, uh, particularly in Latin American fiction a lot. They use animal fables, and it's a way to kind of um, 
sort of shed light on our moors and our uh, kind of um, shibboleths by uh, by sort of talking about a parallel universe. Um, so I like to maintain that uh, that element of satire, but then also kind of push it a bit um, lyrically so that you you know that so, so that you also there, there's an affect that comes out of this experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a very strong affect that comes mm-hmm. out of Coco's experience. Um, and in terms of sort of teaching about social movements, I teach classes at CalArts, and Maggie's my colleague, and soon to be not my colleague, but um, <laughs> has been my comrade. We'll from, always have CalArts. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever gets yeah. away from CalArts. <laughs> but she's, uh, she's been my comrade there for many years. Um, and I teach courses on social movements, on utopian practices, um, uh, as, uh, alongside uh, alongside writing, um, and a course called "The Making of Everyday Life" that is also about sort of how art kind of um, forms uh, everyday life. Um, but I I do think that there is I'm interested in fiction being able to to speak both to the individual experience and a collective experience um and so often we shy away from that um a collective experience and and different social forms and formations and i think often particularly in american fiction we shy away from that because we're afraid it will be didactic but in other uh traditions um and also traditions within the kind of american fiction that may not be quote-unquote mainstream that's not the same uh, there's not that same shying away from that um and so I'm always. That's an interesting line to me to uh, to kind of tread is to to how how to talk about the social without uh, without being didactic or. Uh, I mean, I don't think a story translates into action. I have a story about protesting. Um, that's the the title story, um, and I don't expect someone to read it and get up and go protest. I don't think it it works that way. But it's something that's going on right now, and it's a really interesting phenomenon. And it has all kinds of uh, affect attached to it. By which I mean kind of collective feeling and also individual uh, feeling. So I'm interested in in plumbing that. Um, uh, and also, as you said, exploring uh, ideas around it so that it, it kind of makes you meditate on these things uh, rather than take them for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say about humor because, you know, the stories are often, I mean, what you just read there was a very sad, I think, story. I mean, and then one that was very funny, but it kind of, um, it seems to me like a lot of your stories in terms of affect, uh, because you are a very, I think of as a very hopeful and proactive person, and I'm, the stories hold so much, um, you know, they're, they're, they're often a lot of uh, wry humor, but, pretty, but really grim often, too, and I think it's really interesting um, to read your fiction as a kind of holder for these different affective states. Um, that, I mean, do you feel like that? Do you feel like that you feel free, like, to explore tone differently? Because I was just making a list, to me, of kind of things that was, like, recurring a lot, but, you know, there's a lot of... Um, it's not grim as opposed to hopeful. It's just a kind of... Um, I mean, I could think that the end of that story you read is very apropos, kind of like get that metal detector geared back up here, you know, even if this is the... Even if our day today is just like the day we had yesterday. So I don't know if you want to talk about affect anymore, but mm-hmm. I think it's really an achievement in Janet's stories, you know. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah, I think of it as bleakness mm-hmm. um, as opposed to grimness. We'll get a lot of synonyms for these words tonight, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, but but bleakness for me is this quality of a of kind of describing a landscape mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and a landscape that's sort of emptied out so that you can see mm-hmm. you know in a certain sense you can see wrongdoing mm-hmm. so maybe in that there's some kind of moral but I mean I, like Beckett is very bleak yeah. um, um, but it's also hopeful because. Um, when people are resisting the bleakness in some way mm-hmm. or they're they're not just surviving it they're mm-hmm. trying to transform it like with this monument you know mm-hmm. um, uh, or or with the um, uh, metal detecting it's kind of a it's a practice and it's an aesthetic practice and it, and it, it is in some way sustaining mm-hmm. um, so I think that uh, um, I do think this collection is is, is bleaker than than mm-hmm. Army of One, mm-hmm. even though that was set in the desert, and it, mm-hmm. and there the the bleakness is certainly in mm-hmm. the landscape. Mm-hmm. So I think it's in me <laughs> for sure. Surprise! Um, <laughs> but I mean, uh, I'd rather kind of confront that yeah. head on, but in this kind of perverse way where it doesn't it doesn't overwhelm you, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly. This this story is darker, and I think I I, I kind of veered more towards speculative fiction mm-hmm. a bit to make it weirder, so that we were mm-hmm. able to confront things mm-hmm. that are going on right now, or mm-hmm. were going on at the time of the writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the climate change issue for me—it's just uh, it's terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. If you actually think about it. So, how to kind of get people to think about it mm-hmm. by coming up with some sort of uh, perverse angle? Mm-hmm. Um, but it also means that it hasn't quite happened mm-hmm. yet. If it still has this kind of speculative mm-hmm. dimension, mm-hmm. it's not yet real. And mm-hmm. I think it's important to stay in that mm-hmm. space of virtuality mm-hmm. and actualization, and not just like. Mm-hmm. This is this is the real, and you have to accept it. Which I think a lot of dystopian uh, fiction mm-hmm. and apocalyptic fiction leaves me with that feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll ask just one, maybe two more. But um, the uh, in terms of tone and in terms of what's happening or not happening, you know, for those of you who m- might know this book or not, that there's a novella in the at the end um, that I know because I know Janet has kind of been through different stations of life along the way and has now finally found itself into here called The First Daughter um, finds uh, her way which is kind of connected what like the last 40 pages or something of the book but it's um, uh, I mean it's really interesting right now because it's about first daughter so the daughter of the president and who wants people as Janet kind of was just saying to confront the pain of everything, um, and it's a but. It, but it's a very you know I and I don't know if I was reading into this because I knew that it had been something that you had started a, lo- a longer time ago. But it actually and but because it ends the collection and because there has been a certain degrees of bleakness and you know along with other uh, forms of buoyancy earlier. But it but it has a very um, you know the the first daughter is a. I don't know what you would know because you teach this kind of thing. She's like a, you know, she's she's a, uh, what's the word? She's not a useful idiot. She's like a night. She's like, but she's like a naive heroine, but but wonderful. Like, I don't know what the word is for what she is. She's, but I think it's, but it has a, it has this buoyancy at the end. And I'm wondering, you know, what you, how you feel about the novella now, and how now that we have this other first daughter situation, I'm sure that like every interviewer and under the sun is probably asking you about this. But I just, I just wonder. It's such an, it's such an interesting. 
tale because when we first were talking about it, we were talking about it with Sasha Malia uh, when you were working on it, and things are so distinct now. And obviously, you have a biographical background of you know being in and around these kinds of situations. So I'm just curious as to what you make of how that story is dragged forward in time. You know. Um, yeah, it's funny you call her a useful idiot because she's probably my most autobiographical character. <laughs> And that's why we love you, Janet. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be yeah. a useful idiot. Um, um, I said it wasn't the right word. No, I, I, yeah, was good. I was trying was to good. find it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually uh, that that work has been kicking around the longest, and it was longer at some point. It was a novel, and then I, I shortened it. Um, and I uh, I think that um, you know. I started to think about it after 9-11, uh, and it's interesting how many of the things that we were thinking about after 9-11 and, and, and going to war um, uh, are, are, again, very, you know, present. Um, and the first person to say to me, oh, the president's daughter is such a, you know, interesting character because Ivanka Trump is trying to keep her father from doing terrible mm-hmm. things. And the president's daughter in this story is trying to keep her father after the terrible event that happens, which is something akin to 9-11, trying to keep him from in- invading the world's nations in reverse alphabetical order, right? <laughs> she figures out the key to what's happening. Um, <laughs> And, and I was like, oh my God, yeah, that is a real parallel. Um, but <laughs> it, it, the, I, I really started that, uh, that work to, um, to deal with um, just the climate of fear and, um, and uh, just uncaringness that I saw that, was, that came out after 9-11 and was continuing, continues to this day, the, the war on terror is about uh, letting fear drive you, uh, drive us, um, and um, and also keeping us from caring, right, about about others. And so, the president's daughter in this Wendy is a very caring person. She wants to eradicate world pain, um, and she just tries to make a list of all the pain in the world that is also alphabetical. Um, so there are these two opposite forces, but it, it was also about her uh, sort of finding her freedom. It's a it's a coming of age. She runs away from from the White House, um, and and realizing that freedom can can be the freedom not to care, right? Which is the conservative line, the libertarian line. It's the freedom to, you know, uh, stand up for your, you know, j- just uh, do what you want and not have that be impinged upon. Though of course that only pertains to certain people, but nonetheless, that's an a, that's an ideology, a very strong ideology. But it can also be the freedom to care, and uh, you know, she's. She, she's basically a bleeding heart, and I was I was interested in that notion of bleeding hearts. Um, uh, so weirdly, it still pertains today. It pertained in the election with with the things that people would say about Bernie, and and just like what's possible and what's not possible. Um, and uh, and I see Hillary in the first lady, and I think mm-hmm. so. It's just it's just odd when you work with these archetypal figures. Mm-hmm. Um, they can have different meaning at, at different times, but it, it it isn't Trump, right? This was you know uh, sort of written a long time ago, um, and you know it is. My own family was a political family, and 
she's very awkward in the spotlight. She she hates the spotlight, and I was always interested in Amy Carter, Chelsea Clinton, um, Sasha and Malia were so gracious, and you know they they didn't have that kind of uh, sort of awkward thing, but uh, which I felt like I did. But uh, I mean, my spotlight was a lot smaller. It was just on the state of Maryland, but um, uh, but nonetheless. Um, uh, it's also about different definitions of politics, and politics as being about sort of who has power, who doesn't, um, uh, how do we live together, uh, which is sort of her version, how do we care for one another, versus politics being about either uh, electoral parties or invading other nations, etc. Um, awesome. I have a lot more questions, but I'm going to turn it over to you all because I know that there are a lot of smart and interesting people here and who want to talk to Janet, so... Off you go. <laughs> you also might just be really tired. Yeah, well, I have a lot more questions too, but we'll give him a, we'll give him the moment of of a long silence that will shame somebody. <laughs> Speaking. <laughs> something. Great. Oh, hey, Michelle. <laughs> Coco uh, was um, the voice of Coco, so great. I love everything you were saying, Maggie. But there's also something like um, uh, Coco's in the in the spotlight. So it's a, it's a um, you know commenting on media and all the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the structures there. But I we feel like Coco too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean that's why it's why like how we're Mm-hmm. I mean, I identify with that voice too. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, are we like the manipulator, or are we the Coco? Right. <laughs> right. So, well, you're definitely Coco, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. No, that's a good question because I think throughout this collection, the humans are really um, kind of hapless, and the animals, you know, as my blurb says, are very. Uh, they have the real wisdom. And they're speaking back, and um, so you know if you, and and they're also not in control of of their priorities, right? Uh, their lives are being determined by human priorities, which is what's happening to nature, right? Or 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 the natural world, or or, or sort of the environment at this time. So their lives are being um, decided elsewhere, and I think that we feel that very strongly at this moment. A lot of people. Uh, I mean, it's like, like the, the idiot in, you know, being subjected to that and also sort of the idiot manipulator or... Uh, so Thanks. Yeah. Along those lines, it was interesting that you described the first story as post apocalyptic, the second one as pre apocalyptic, because in, in a way, I found the second one more apocalyptic in terms of the weakness mm-hmm. and the despair and the kind of lack of an authentic relationship and mm-hmm. kind of project and you know the ability to build something whereas there was I mean there was it's called monuments mm-hmm. about some kind of creativity and like some kind of authentic relationship that was like totally I mean it was this Coco story is all about like just 
more post-apocalyptic than mm-hmm. the kind of Right. Um, you know, blank slate. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that, but I can see hope in any of my stories, so <laughs> I'm not a good judge. But, um, but yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a really good point, um, and particularly just because you see uh, how many years Coco's been in that state, right? Um, so it's not just something has happened like what has happened in that town on Lake Michigan. I'm not exactly sure, but there's ashes all over everything. Um, but uh, and then people are kind of regrouping and going to survive it's like a it, it's 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 some it's, it's a life that for you know 44 years has been has been this um so you get that because that's the real thing but also she does she does control the narrative and and i think in that there is there is some hope to kind of uh reverse the reverse the tables and she can she she reverses the table and also she comes up with another with another narrative um and she does kind of uh i think accost the readers accost us on some level in terms of you know uh don't you want to fund this film um uh you're part of this too so yeah but thanks for your for your point (laughs) martha Not only the weakness in the back end, mm-hmm. but use of repetition. Mm-hmm. In the way in which, in so many of the stories, and I haven't finished this book yet, but I've read the other book, mm-hmm. there's a way in which you use repetition in ways that um, create a kind of anxiety as mm-hmm. it goes on. And I just wonder what your thinking is about that and um, how you think about the use of repeating aspects of a scene or what happens to a character. Um, I guess I was just I was trying to think of that the way in which you get a kind of anxious comedy mm-hmm. both Beckett and then reading your work or at least I do oh thank you I uh um there's a master of repetition here who's Harold Abramowitz, so I always think of his work as just really masterfully uh, being about exactly what you're talking about, that repetition that creates anxiety and, and comes from anxiety. Um, I, it, I think maybe it is also part of this uh, kind of um, shoring, up, shoring up a narrative so that, you know, if you repeat things, it's it sort of... It, it makes an impression and it gets stronger uh, in the mind of the reader. Um, uh, and then just also linguistically to hear to hear things repeated. Um, obviously, I'm talking to a great poet, so uh, so you know how that works. But um, uh, I, I try to do that, and especially in the stories that are more interior uh, monologues, um, uh, to to just use that that device to. Um, uh, I don't know, like I said, to, to, to kind of shore up the narrative, to deepen the impression. Yeah. You want to do a couple more? Whatever you want. I don't remember the whole So when you're writing fiction that's engaging in commentary with like real people, like mm-hmm. Coco, yeah. kind of that emboldens your writing or gives you more caution as you're writing? Like what, how does that affect your writing? The process? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, it's a really useful constraint, right? Because you're just you're working with the facts of your life of their lives, um, uh, and 
um, in, in in the case of the animals, it's, it's sort of trying to. Uh, you know, I have a story about Laika, the space dog, for instance, and um, one of her handlers said in the 80s, uh, you know, we shouldn't have sent her up. They sent her into space and they didn't have a way to get her back, so she died, right, out there. And he said, we shouldn't have sent her up. Um, the, uh, the scientists really suffered from the dog space program. Uh, we treated them like children who could not speak. And I was really interested by that concept. And so what if you, what if you make it so they can speak, right? So that in and of itself is impossible. But otherwise I was working, in these stories I work with the, with the facts of their, their lives very closely. With the Coco one, I, I, I'm actually still, you know, I don't, it's not like my book's going to have that far reach, but... Um, <laughs> But the Gorilla Foundation is really litigious, so I I was kind of nervous about it, um, and uh, um, I've written other stories that were from real life that um, about, uh, for instance, like I wrote a story for Black Clock about a character in the kind of uh, psychedelic world, the world of you know uh, kind of psychedelic experimentation, and 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 it ended up in in like an archive of her of writing about her that was like real writing and my fictional story ended up there and I was like oh but nothing ever happened she's you know she's in the world of psychedelic experimentation and maybe she's going to sue me but yeah no especially with the Coco one I'm I'm still a little nervous about it I don't know what the copyright things are but you know it's fiction so you have a big um, lasso yeah do you want more? one more okay hey <laughs> Talk a little bit about the go about the fear of appearing didactic mm. that a lot of books have, and um, it's true that as a reader, I'm very defensive against didactic. As soon as I smell it, I get very sensitive to it. And so I wanted to see if you would talk a little bit more about where you think that fear comes from mm-hmm. and why it's a risk that you're willing to take. Mm. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, I, like I said, particularly I'm 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 very much uh, affiliated with Latin American short fiction, and there's but but throughout time there well human uh, uh, written history there's been um, the genre of the fable or the parable right um, it is like a short story genre. Uh, and then, um, and then they modernize it and, and, and kind of do interesting things with it, precisely to play with that notion of uh, that you can be taught, right? That uh, you can be instructed as to what you should do, either through absurdism by instructing you to do absurd things like how to uh, how to climb a staircase, right? That's um, Julio Cortazar, um, uh, or or other things, um, but in terms of being willing to risk it, I mean the the first daughter finds her way was really the first um, kind of time I was like I'm just going to write something that's political, but I didn't I didn't really know what that meant, but I just felt this very strong, uh, you know, and I and I could give a Marxist reading of it that's about you know like um, sort of uh, the bourgeois self and how it must defend itself you know from um, from any notion of collectivity. So I just did that, but. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, but I think you know there there are a variety of reasons why that doesn't why that doesn't become 
you know, popular, especially when it's aligned with uh, a more kind of um, autonomous politics, right? Uh, or politics of protest or or resistance. Um, so I don't know. I, I think there's still people, you know, who 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 don't like it. And I and I I like a lot of stuff that's not what I do. So I'll just say that. Um, um, but I was interested in, in walking that line and daring that, particularly because I felt something happening in the, in the culture uh, politically. Um, and I wanted to, to kind of tap into that and represent it. So long answer. But thank you guys so much. Yeah, you guys really yeah. need to get the book and have Janet sign it right now. Yeah. Okay. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.